Earth is the Lord's is the new morning series, The Midas Trap, and How to Avoid It. And the topic this morning is why some Christians find God to be more satisfying than do others. And I'm glad you were all so excited and happy singing that hymn, because we're starting a series on giving. It's been years since I've done uh, any extended teaching on the subject of giving. Probably a decade. The earth is the Lord's is the phrase that starts the title. Maybe you brought someone to church, by the way, and told him, you should come to our church. Our pastor never talks about money. The earth is the Lord's. And you think of the words of David as he um, dedicates the temple and, and, he's, and he says, all, all, that we're, all that I've given you, raising money for this massive temple, he says, all that I've given you, it's just returning what you've given me. He says, everything's yours. So this, this kind of registers in David's mind. And that phrase, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I think it's one of those truths that um, we kind of reverently nod to because we're supposed to. Everything I have, yes, Pastor Don, everything I have is it's from God. I'm just a steward. It's, it's the Lord's. But I don't think any of us really believes it. It's hard to believe that. And there's good reasons why it's very, very hard to believe that earnestly. When's the last time you went and took some money out of the wailing wall there with your your debit card and then got your statement, pushed the button and got your statement and found there's been a withdrawal of $1,000 and it was from Father God? When's the last time you got your visa bill and there was a $1,500 expense and it was from the Trinity? I do my banking. I do my debit. I do my credit card. I fill out my taxes. I earn my money. I pay my bills with my money. Nobody touches it. Well, Rini touches quite a bit of it. But but you get my point. You earn your money. And if you're going to buy another house, you buy another house. And if you're buying a cottage, you buy a cottage. And if you want four cars, you buy four cars. And if you want to buy this, you buy it. As long as you can pay for it, it's your money. You earned it. You spend it. You save it. You invest it. It's yours. Has God ever touched your money? Seriously, has he ever touched your money? So it's, it, I know, I know the earth is the Lord's. Everything's his, I know. But not really. I got my credit card and God doesn't use it. I do it. And so it's one of those things that that is 
sentimentally true, religiously true, but almost has nothing to do with our lives. Now, when you think about it, it's not just, it's not just your money where we have this issue. We just got done singing. Wonderful grace of Jesus, deeper far than all my sin and shame. So we sing and praise and magnify his forgiveness, right? How do you know you're forgiven? Did you ever ask yourself that? How do you know? How do you know there's a heaven? Anybody ever come back and told you? How do you know there's going to be a new creation, new heaven, and new earth? How do you know your body is going to come out of the grave? And the way we know all of that is we have God's word. We have God's word. We have the record of the New Testament, the record of the resurrection of Jesus. But it's, it's the record that we have and we believe. Faith is always, faith is always the evidence of things not seen. It's, it's pulling in things from a future realm, another realm, and it's pulling them in, and it's making them real in our hearts as God helps us by the Holy Spirit. But you can't. You, you know, in Sunday school, we had a flannel graph board, and the teacher would show me a, a, a dark, dark heart here and a white heart here. I'm not even sure that would be politically correct anymore. But the idea was uh, it was clean now. But I can't see into my heart. Can you see into yours? How do you know you're forgiven? Well, we have promise. And we rest on that. And the same is true with all of our material goods. God is never going to take money out of your checking account. God is never going to tell you you can't buy this or you can't buy that. God is never going to tell you you can't use your money in such a way that at the end of the month there's just nothing left over. Sorry, God, I just, you know, expenses, man. Who can afford this? And you can do that. I suppose there's a kind of pride that can creep up on a church that maybe unlike a lot of churches today, we don't talk a lot about money and giving, it's usually something like, thanks for your faithful support, God bless you, and the ushers come down the aisle. That's what we do, except for World Impact Sunday. But maybe we shouldn't gloat. Maybe it's not a good sign when Jesus talked about money more than heaven or hell, and a church doesn't. Maybe that puts us a bit out of sync with our Lord. Maybe it misses his heart. Maybe it misses something in his call to lordship, to Don Horbin and to you. I'm not sure this is one of the favorite topics among attendees in a church. And I think that in itself, I suppose, only shows how lovingly we're tied to the notion that our wealth is our wealth and it's not really anyone else's business. We'd rather have less sensitive areas of our lives 
probed by the lordship of Jesus, Pastor Don. Thank you very much. Go after same-sex marriage or abortion or something. So I have four texts I want to look at quickly this morning. You'll love these points. Biblical text number one. Pretty short, eh? Psalm 73, 23 to 28. You can pull me down, please, in volume. Psalm 73, 23 to 28. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven besides you? This phrase, there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail. God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end. You put an end. You can sing, I will not die, all you want. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you and everyone else. We all die. But for me, it is good to be near God. This sentence. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So here are the telling phrases in this first text. 25, there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. That one right there. How do we say, pray, those words without feeling like we're either pretending or worse, lying? Really? Really, Don? Nothing else on the face of the whole earth that you're longing for. Can you say that about your heart? I don't think I could say that about mine. There's nothing else on earth that I'm really that interested in. The second phrase is in verse 26. But God is the strength of my heart and, and my portion, that word I want to talk about, my portion forever. And that word, portion, it pictures kind of the, the, the sustenance, the supply of what we need, like a portion of food, a piece of pie, a portion. It's, it's a nice-sounding prayer, but it faces the same problems as that first phrase, as there being nothing on earth that we desire besides God. He's my portion. He alone is my portion. I don't know if I trust myself saying those words. I don't want to be turned into a pillar of salt. The third phrase might be the most interesting of all. I have made the Lord God my refuge. That's that one right there. This this is not something God did. This is something the psalmist did. I have made the Lord God my refuge. Now, Here's where I kind of want the rest of this message to go. My thinking is, those first two phrases, there is nothing on earth I desire besides you, 
God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. I think those two phrases describe the, the ideal, the goal. Remember I said, I'm not, I'm not sure I can say that about my life. So that's, that's the fully formed heart of the follower of Christ for whom God has, not just in words, but has actually become this sweetly satisfying portion as an actual experience. So, so those warm words, there is nothing on earth I desire besides you, 25. God is the strength of my life, my portion forever. You can't fake those words. This is, that's heart life, Right? It's, it's ambition life. It's desire life. It's affection life. There's no pretending when you say that. I know others can be fooled by my bold outward claims as a Christian. Jesus is Lord. I love you, Lord. But the heart speaking those kinds of words... There's nothing on earth I desire beside you. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those words of God being the all-satisfying portion. Other people won't know, but I will instantly know if there's an inward reality behind those statements. Because those aren't just doctrine words. Anybody can make factual claims about Christianity or anything else for that matter. But we know when the God of whom we speak really is all we desire. On earth, he's talking about. On earth. So if those two phrases describe the goal, the destination... The, the fully formed, God-captivated heart. Nothing on earth I desire beside you, 25. Strength of my life, portion forever, 26. If that describes where I want my heart to be, where I want to get in my relationship with God... Then that third phrase... Describes how it happens. The one in verse 28. I, I, have made the Lord God my refuge. That's the path. That's the action of the psalmist. I have done this. And he did it to free his own heart from all that would prevent God being his satisfying portion and the strength of his life. So that's how I plan to work through those three phrases. The goal in the first two and then the means in the third. But immediately, of course, a question arises. And it's a question we can't avoid because these three connected phrases, they kind of create their own momentum. The ideas just come tumbling out one after another. From what does the psalmist need refuge? I have made the Lord God my, right? Refuge. What is his concern? What enemy is he talking about? That's what a refuge is for. 
From which enemy is he seeking protection when he makes the Lord God his refuge? That seems to be a fair question. And fortunately, he tells us. The enemy isn't the usual array of threatening armies. They're in many of the psalmist's prayers. No Philistines, no Amalekites, no Amorites. They're not mentioned. No. Different enemy. One he fears greatly. He needs refuge from this enemy. This enemy is much deadlier, much harder to track down, much harder to deal with. This enemy is that one quietly growing, mutating, deadly virus working against all spiritual life and joy. The enemy from which the psalmist needs to make the Lord God his portion and refuge. The enemy is greed. How do you know, Pastor Don? Read the psalm. That this was his concern is not a guess. Read the whole psalm. The the psalmist is envious of the wicked. Not because they're wicked, but because they're rich. This This is what we see so clearly in the text. He tells us twice. Verse 3. I was envious of the arrogant. Who's envious of an arrogant person? When I saw... This, right? Prosperity. They've got, they got mountains of money. Twelve. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. And here's what bugs them the most. They're not just rich. They're getting richer. Take special note. The psalmist, for all his spiritual hunger, he's not an ungodly man. For all of his spiritual hunger, here's here's the problem. Here's what he needs refuge from. He, He admired wealth. He admired the way these people could make more wealth. He admits that this is what fueled his, his, his envy. Envious. When I saw the prosperity. Their wealth looked good to the psalmist. Not their wickedness, but their money. It was inviting. It was captivating. It fed his dreams for happiness and security. He was envious because these people were getting more and more money. They increase in riches. This is the link to this unapologetic series of teachings on giving. It doesn't come from a church with a huge mortgage to pay off. It doesn't come from a church trying to dig out from a massive mountain of debt and and that makes for good timing because while those emergencies tend to loosen the wallets of caring people they are in fact the smallest and the poorest reasons for generous giving to a church they're the poorest reasons the best reason for generous proportionate 
continuous sacrificial giving is, is the creation of a heart that has been freed to savor God as its portion, verse 26. And what we see here, only sacrificial kingdom giving deepens desire for God and allows him to be treasured more than anything else on earth. That's that verse 25. The idea here, don't miss it, is you can't pray this kind of heart into existence. Only sacrificial giving constructs the refuge from the heart cancer of covetousness. For sure, until the commitment to make God your refuge is deliberately made, that's in verse 28, I have made the Lord God my refuge. Until that happens, other trinkets will automatically, automatically be cherished all out of proportion to their true worth. You won't be able to do anything about that in your heart. This is no slight problem, though most of us, I include myself, we don't see the deadly problem of accumulated wealth. I talked about it at the beginning, why it's very, very hard for us to believe that the earth is the Lord's. Because he leaves us alone with our money. We feel pretty sovereign with it. Hence the message, title, and the mention of King Midas. Details of the legend, if you Google it, they vary greatly. But once upon a time, around 2000 BC, apparently, loving King Midas took pity on a poor traveler in need of sanctuary. And after several months of restoration, this strange peasant, as he departed, looked back at King Midas and said, what you didn't know is I have the capacity to grant you any wish. So it's the stuff of fairy tales. And the greed that swelled up in Midas heart instantly blurted up the unguarded soul's request that everything he touched might turn to gold. It's pretty cool. Everything he touched might turn to gold. And the peasant said, grant it. Legend has it that King Midas instantly tested his wish by touching a withered oak branch on the ground. He picked it up and instantly it glistened in the sunlight as pure gold. And King Midas could not contain his joy. He called all the leaders in his kingdom to a huge feast. All were gathered at the table. Finest foods were set before them. And of course, as wealth always does Midas' golden touch had kept him from thinking through the implications of his wish. As he started to eat, he realized that every piece of food he touched turned to gold, and you can't digest gold, and he realizes he's doomed. In many accounts... It's just a legend. Midas dies of starvation, trapped by his love of gold. 
to the point, listen, trapped by his love for gold to the point where he was blind to the future effects it would have on his life. In other accounts, he celebrated his granted wish by hastily picking up his child, who, of course, instantly ceases to be a living being and is turned into this statue of lifeless gold. The message of the legend is the same either way. Gold can never substitute for what gives life its truest meaning and joy. Well, that's just a legend, the story describes the default position of our fallen human hearts. Now, move away from the legend to the absolute biblical revelation in our psalmist's words. And the heart cherishing anything but God and his kingdom will have, it will have no protection, no refuge. It will be refuge-less in terms of not selling out to covetousness, something other than God will become the heart's self-destructing portion. I have made the Lord my refuge. We shouldn't take lightly the fact that the psalmist actually had to make the Lord God his refuge to win his battle. Remember what his battle was? It was greed, right? He talked about it twice. He was envious of wealth and what wealth could do and what wealth could buy and what wealth could prevent. He had to win that battle with his heart and the only way to do it was to make God his refuge. And we know that that wasn't an easy battle for him to win because he tells us he almost lost this battle. It's in verse 2. He says, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. I almost didn't win this one. The Philistines are easier to defeat than this one. No automatic victory here. Making the Lord God refuge isn't a simple one-time win. Greed has to be rooted out of my life at a great cost. It has to be ripped out like an abscessed tooth. And the psalmist had to do it himself. I have made the Lord God my refuge. But he paid the price and he looked back with great joy that he had found a better way. That's what he is saying in his prayer in Psalm 73. When God has made the portion of your life, you will know it, and here's how you will know it. Nothing else will feel essential for your inward contentment and joy. Everything else in life gets measured down to its true scale. Now, either the psalmist was right or wrong. Either life will work this way or it won't. Either God is ultimately good and satisfying and the proper end of all our energies and affections, or he isn't. 
Does the teaching of Jesus shed any light on those old dusty words from Psalm 73? I think it does. Text number 2. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, that's the important word. In the whole parable, that's the most important word. He goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. So when gold is the ultimate delight, you end up with the curse of King Midas. Something greater than gold must be pursued for the soul to have a refuge in the Lord God, for the soul to be safe. But, but delight in God can't just be expressed in mere words. Delight in God is expressed in joyful, material sacrifice. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. And just to be clear, we know from Jesus' parable that the field is God's kingdom. He tells us that at the beginning. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hid in a field. Right there. So smaller loves only yield to greater loves. That's how it works. And greater loves are only sustained by deeper sacrifice. In other words, greater love for God can't just be verbally established, and it can't just be musically established, and it can't just be emotionally established. A greater love for God must be materially established. He sells all that he has. And he buys that field. Whether you have great wealth or less, that's all of us in this room. Don't think about anybody but yourself. Whether you have great wealth or less, one thing is certain of all of us, money lies to us. It tells you and it tells me that we will have greater joy if we spend it instead of giving it. That's what your money tells you. You will have greater joy if you earn it and spend it than if you earn it and give it. That's a lie. That's a lie. tells you and me that we will find the better life if everything we touch turns to gold. And God has so ordained it that we can only sacrifice our way out of that deadly deception. Only radical, regular, proportionate, sacrificial giving provides refuge from the slow death of universal covetousness. Love of the world And its treasures will not yield to sermons or warnings or lectures or exhortations. The smaller loves that cling so tightly to all of our hearts will only yield by obediently responding to the call of a greater love. Giving 
is always the ultimate act of faith. And that's why many miss life's greatest reward. But once people get a taste of God, once they taste true joy, once they have had his presence free their earthbound hearts, they start, it's gradual, they start to experience a new level of discovery. A greater joy displaces the old, and a new momentum starts to build in following Christ. Preachers don't have to beg for involvement in extending and expanding and sacrificing for God's kingdom. The heart has been set free by the power of a greater love. For joy, he goes and sells all that he has. Nobody makes him do this. He can't wait to do it. Biblical text number three. Paul is the speaker. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So here's Paul's record. It's preserved like a fossil for all of us to see. There were things he had held dear, things he treasured and fondled as the joy producers of his life, and nothing could change his outlook. And then he discovered Christ, or Christ discovered him, and everything changed. He left his possessions, he gave up his plans for his future, he gave up a life of learning and religious studies, his reputation, the respect of his peers, to say nothing of the affluence, the affluence that would have been his portion. Left it all. Left it with joy. None of it mattered anymore. None of it mastered him. You can almost hear Paul praying with Asaph in our psalm, besides you, I desire nothing on earth. So here's what needs to be said at this point in this message. There's a, there's a fine line between joy and sorrow. And the line isn't drawn where most people think. Most people think the line is drawn between the haves and the have-nots, but that's, that's really not even close to the truth. The fine line between joy and sorrow is drawn between sacrificers and hoarders. Isn't there a, I've never seen it. Is there not a show on TV, one of those reality things about hoarding? Do you ever think that if God looks in my heart... And yours. Not our houses, our hearts. Do you ever think if he looks into what I treasure, what I value, what I give my time to, what means the most to me, would he look in my heart and just see, oh my goodness, boxes and dust and dead rats and all sorts of where I see where I see my my multiplying investments and my paid off house and my this and my tax free saving and when I see all this stuff, do you think God looks in and just goes, "Holy cow, what a mess is in there?" Probably doesn't say "Holy cow," but (laughs) 
It's between givers and keepers. It's between those who invest with joy in the eternal kingdom of Christ and those that try to keep as much as they can for themselves, those who dream of the Midas touch. Let me show you what I mean in my last text. We've already seen the joy, the joy of the man who sold everything to buy that field with the treasure. The joy. Now we're going to look at the sorrow of a man who kept everything he owned for himself. The last text is Luke 18, 22 to 25. This guy comes, the background is he really wants to follow Jesus, and he sincerely does want to follow Jesus. That's why he comes. Nobody made him come. And he talked about how he had he'd worked at the religious stuff. Keeping the law, going to the temple, the sacrifices, the commandments. And when Jesus heard this, he said to them, one, one thing you still lack. Now, every time I read it, I can't help but have it jump out at me. When Jesus looks at this man... Who, who, by the way, it says, um, he's extremely rich, right? He's extremely rich. Jesus says there's something you still lack, something you're missing. Sell what you have, distribute to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. So it's interesting to me that Jesus describes him as lacking something, missing something, right? That's what lack is. Lack means short, empty. You don't have enough. You're lacking. And then immediately Jesus says, you're you're lacking something. You're short. You're lacking. I want to fill you up. Okay? How does that happen? Well, you lack something. So here's what you need to do. You need to give away. Now, you would think, if I lack, I would say, no, no, I need, I need this way, right? And Jesus says, no, you lack, you're not ready to follow me. Isn't that true? You're not ready to follow me. Keep all the commandments. You're not ready to follow. It's your heart I'm after, and what you love is it's there. And very significantly, Jesus doesn't say, you can keep everything you have, just make sure you love me with your heart. That's what most of us would have said. What Jesus says is, no, your heart, your heart can't be freed until you start giving. Sell what you have, distribute to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, come follow me. When he heard these things, remember, we're talking about joy and sorrow. The guy that buys the treasure in the field, he he sells everything with joy. This guy keeps everything with sorrow. For he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, he saw he was sad. What's that mean? Did the guy cry? Did he weep? Jesus saw that he was sad. Not angry. Sad. 
He said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Those are the words of a man who never had to give away a penny. Nor do I, nor do you. He was extremely rich, 23, and he could spend every dollar any way he wanted. He could, with very little effort, make lots more money to boot. Wealth, not always, but wealth frequently makes it easier to get more wealth. The, the, the carrot just dangles a little bit in front of the nose all the time, and we fall for it. What's money for? Well, to get more. And so this rich man, he chose not to obey Jesus when he called for his sacrificial discipleship. He could do whatever he wanted with the rest of his life. Oh, and one more thing, he left miserable. His wealth could buy everything he wanted except... God as his refuge and his portion. He crossed the line between joy and sorrow and didn't even know it. And that's because he wasn't looking in the right place. Only a passionate, all-consuming love for God turns the material things of this life into what they were meant to be all along, instruments for spreading God's glory. And once that secret, the secret of all giving, has been discovered, there's no telling just how fruitful, how godly, and oh yeah, how joyful you might be surprised to find your life 